HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. I'm heading back to the East Coast today for a chat with Chef Tyler Aiken, founder of Form Function Hospitality. We chat about his culinary adventures up and down the Eastern Seaboard his mentoring of the next generation of chefs, and how he supported the culinary community during the pandemic. And then we head into the archives when we were joined in the studio by singer, songwriter, Monica Heiderman, who performs under the name Heiderman, who tells us about her early love of synthesizers and plays a few songs to show them off. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HRN.
Tyler, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule just for my digging in alone. I know it's full on right now, so appreciate you sitting down with us. Thanks for having me, Darren. Uh, esteemed company, really honored and flattered to be here with you. I mean, speaking of company, let's just go straight to the hometown because I'm from Philly and I just feel like in the first few years of this show, maybe we got a Philly person, you know, things like that. And now I feel if I look back the last like 10, 20 shows, a quarter of it's Philadelphia people, you know, yourself included. Um, what's going on in the city? Like what's happening there from the ground up? I mean, it's incredible. When when did you uh, when did you leave Philly yourself? Oh, I, I I left when I graduated high school. I never went back, so it's two thousand. But I go back every <laughs> yeah. year, so yeah. I have like um, I have a good idea. I mean, it's my hometown, so I keep abreast of it. But yeah. you know, it's like I think the last you know Spraga ate there and Fork and Form, which I'm blanking. I'm not seeing the right restaurant name, but um, Fork, yeah, Fork. Yeah, you no, know, it's like I've checked in. But it's not like it is today. It's, I mean, it's it's wild, and I'll stop asking you questions now. But no, 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 um, it's fair. It's, you flip the mic around, whatever you want. I think I, you know, I, just to kind of illustrate the trajectory of of the city and its food scene. I mean, I moved to Philly. Um, I guess it was like 2012, and you know, at the time, I I, I had an opportunity. But kind of wanted to, you know, and had convinced myself it was the right thing to do to move up to Philly from D.C., where I'd been for about five years. Um, <clears throat> wanted to be closer to home uh, in Wilmington for several reasons at the time. But, um, you know, I, I there were really like I think there were maybe like four restaurants, mm -hmm. maybe five restaurants that I felt like I'd really be happy at and would kind of. Um, continue me on the path that I wanted to be on. It was, it was, you know, which isn't to say that, you know, there were, there were more um, that I was probably unaware of. Right. But um, I have been in DC for a minute and, you know, just kind of looking down from 10,000 feet, like, where am I going to be happy? Where can I keep developing as a cook and a chef? Um, you know, now if I were moving from DC uh, to Philly, you know, kind of at a similar point in my career as I was then, I would be overwhelmed by the options. Like it, it's Truly just unbelievable. Like, like there would be 30 or 40 restaurants. That I would be very, very happy taking the next step in my career at um, now. And, and it's just, it's incredible. I mean, you know, on the one hand, that's amazing. It's great for diners. It's, it's great for the community of chefs to know that there are so many of us kind of putting in the work and, and, and doing fun and interesting things, pushing the scene forward. But, um, you know, the, the, the flip side of that, like the, the other edge of that sword, I guess, mm -hmm. um, is, is, you know, that, and I, I think it's happened in, in almost every major market, uh, in the restaurant scene is, is it, um, you know, it kind of dilutes the labor pool in a way. Um, uh, yeah, you know, Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's, you know, from an operating standpoint, it creates some challenges from a consumer standpoint, cultural standpoint. It's like a blessing. It's unbelievable. Sure. Sure. And it's it's a diverse 
amount of owners and operators when I feel like it used to be you could count them a lot of restaurants and maybe four or five restaurateurs who are behind them. And, um, you know, you mentioned Wilmington, Delaware, which I know is where you grow up. We haven't had you may be our first chef who's actually from Delaware on the show. And I always felt that like Philly had that New York chip on his shoulder. Does Wilmington, Delaware have the Philly chip on his shoulder? Can Philly actually be a chip on someone's shoulder? Or is that just me, you know, being hopeful about Philadelphia pride? Um, I think the vibe between Wilmington and Delaware as somebody who grew up down there is like, we, I, I, I think we, you know, downtown Wilmington has its own thing going on and, and its own, you know, exciting course that, that, that it's on as far as like restaurants are concerned. There's been a several cool places open the last few years. Mm -hmm. They're more in the pipeline. Um, proud to be a part of it. I think, you know, for me growing up, and I'm assuming this is still the case, there's, there's, there's sort of a sense that you're a major suburb of Philly in a way, right? Like, yes, we have a downtown. Yes, we are a proper kind of small, medium sized city. Um, but you know, for us, like, we're all Philadelphia sports fans. We, when we tough, skip school, uh, when we skip school our, in, in high school, right. It was, it was to go up to South street and get a zipper head and get a cheesesteak oh, at gyms man. and all that stuff. So, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're in a way maybe honorary Philadelphians and, uh, everybody in Philadelphia who, who owns a business comes down to Delaware to set up their LLC. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, tax haven for all. Um, so, uh, you know, I know that you, from Wilmington, where you grew up, you went to New York and you were studying law, but you got pulled into the food scene and you got pulled into the food scene during an interesting time in New York, like one of these really exciting times, but you didn't stay there. You went to DC. Why not stick around and play at this like incredible time in New York? What, what did DC or what did you personally want to get out of, you know, the start of your culinary career. So there, there's an air gap there in my biography. Um, I actually, uh, like I went to NYU for my freshman year, um, mm-hmm. had been recruited to play soccer there. And like, <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed New York a little too much. I mean, mm. I was closing up, I was closing up bars, uh, you know, um, Loved it was, I would say I was overwhelmed by the pace and energy and like the fact that NYU didn't really have a campus to speak of. Um, you know, I kind of came back to University of Delaware with my tail between my legs and and finished up down there. Um, and then, you know, followed a girl down to DC who had taken a job down there. Oh, there um, you go. Was, there it is. <laughs> hey, me, me, kinda, me, like, me too in Austin, buddy. Me too in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing with my life at that point. Sure. Um, she was, she was from a hospitality family, um, you know, Chicago originally. Um, and I just kind of caught the bug. I mean, it was mm. uh, like, a, like a lot of people, I think who are my contemporaries, it was a combination of, you know, maybe like, um, Bourdain was our proximate kind of, sure. uh, inspiration. But for me, uh, you know, growing up, Food was a, was a big part of our family. You know, my mom cooked dinner every night. My grandmother cooked amazing dinners for for holidays. Uh, my sister always had like Food Network on. You know, so the early years, like I literally remember, I think 
like that first episode. I, I remember watching the first episode of Malta Mario where he mangles his hand on 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 live television mm-hmm. live. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about Malta Mario, but I will. Um, <laughs> sure. Three fat ladies, you know, all that stuff. It was uh, grilling and chilling. It was just like a fixture in our living room. So, yeah, um, yeah I you know I I I knew this might be a cool path for me. I, I was an athlete. It felt like somewhere I could remain sort of competitive and, and active, um, appealed to my ADHD. Sure. And, uh, I don't know. I, I started working for this artisanal bread baker who had set up these crazy spreads at farmer's markets down there. And he had a catering division to his, uh, to his business and started gravitating more and more towards that. And at a certain point he, he said, you, you should go to culinary school. Um, so I did, I, there was a, a, a very classically French culinary school outside DC called L'Académie de Cuisine, mm-hmm. and like, you know, Carla Hall, uh, Aaron Silverman from Roses, like they have some great graduates, yeah. uh, but, um, you know, it's now defunct sadly, but it was, it was an incredible place. It was all these ex white house chefs, ex French embassy chefs who, you know, had stories about like knife fights in the kitchen in Lyon in the seventies and, uh, um, you know, really, really, uh, different time. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, totally. So yeah, that was, you know, a little more roundabout path back to Philly, but, um, was lucky to spend my first several years cooking, uh, with some amazing people down in DC. So, um, yeah. Yeah, great place. I've always wondered about DC because I feel like New York, the epicenter is like the financial district in many ways and things like that. And LA is obviously Hollywood, but DC's political broker and power players and things like that. And, you know, we are kicking off an election year. What was it like working in DC for all those years? Like, did you feel that ramp up around election years? Was there was it a different type of clientele than you would expect from other cities? Just because it's such a concentration of one specific, like you don't get that even in any other East Coast city. It's a very yeah. unique uh, conglomerate of people. It really is. I think that um, you know these defining characteristics of, of DC, especially the the kind of avid dining audience mm-hmm. down there. Um, you have like seemingly limitless expense accounts, right? Yeah, so that's one thing. So they, uh, as a result of that, I think, uh, you know, probably per capita, mm. um, maybe more compelling restaurants than um, most other places, you know, uh, because the economy can support it. Um, there was never a recession in DC, right? Sure. Like I was getting into this around the time of the financial crisis of, of like 2007, eight. And, um, I think it took many years for a lot of markets to recover from the effects of that, uh, of that time. DC, on the other hand, like the money never stopped flowing through <laughs> lobby shops, through contractors, sure. right? So it was a very healthy scene, even in the context of of this really like cataclysmic economic condition that most of the country was going through. Um, when I started working at Comey, um, 
which was just a, a, an incredible and legendary place uh, um, that's now taken on a new identity during the pandemic. But um, Comey was was this, you know, I think it was 34 seats um, at the time. It was a $150 tasting menu, which was, you know, inflation adjusted would probably be a, a $300 tasting menu now, whatever. Sure. Um, sure. It was, uh, you know, and we were full every night. There was no, you right. know, granted, small, but, and there were several other restaurants like that. I mean, at the time there was Citronelle and there was, um, you know, some, some other spots that were, uh, that were like really just doing that format um, and having no trouble getting butts and seats, you know, by contrast, Philly in the, in the, in the, you know, 12 or 13 years I've been here or close by um, they're really like, it's, it's a, it's a different ethos. It's a different um, it's a different market entirely. Uh, not a lot of tasting menu kind mm-hmm. of format restaurants to speak of. You know, some people have even abandoned it recently uh, who, had, who had done it for a long time. And um, I don't know, you know, the other thing in D.C. is it's so transient, right? So sure. people that you don't have folks who, um, you know, except for maybe like the owners of a, of a, of a lobby firm or, hmm. or principals at a law firm, like most people aren't sticking around there for the long haul. And it empties out over the weekend too. Often, often, yeah. Um, you know, so it, it, it for me, like I, I really like DC. There were aspects of it that I didn't love, but quickly became nostalgic for it when I left. Like I, I do appreciate um, trees mm. <laughs> for one thing. Um, I, I, you know, I, there's something appealing about the the scale of that city like from from a, a sure. verticality sort of standpoint it's like it, you know it's it's um it's like a big town you know there's not there are more big buildings there than maybe when i lived there but it's uh you know it has this very like modest scale to it you know in the way that much of you know new orleans does for instance you know you're not like looking up at these huge buildings for the most part um, there's an appeal to that too, but, uh, it's, it's incredible. I mean, every time I go back to DC, there are more great restaurants that have opened in the meantime, you know, and like the, the trajectory of that city was, was, was clearly heading in that direction when I left. Um, and then within a couple of years, there was just an absolute explosion. Yeah. You know, by, by 2015, it was, uh, you know, I was I was telling people partly just to be kind of controversial, but I was, <laughs> I, was, I was telling people in Philly. I think DC is a better restaurant city than Philly. Here I am in Philly, there just goes trying Tyler. to ruffle feathers. Three Philly uh, specials it, in. He's talking about DC. <laughs> it's an amazing place, and I still have really good friends down there. Um, you know, and uh, I, I will always always remember the folks at at Comey and Little Sarah so fondly. Amazing. Well, let's take a quick musical break and we come back. I want to talk about your return to Philly, your opening of your own spots and your deep love for Pusha T. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. Back 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Tyler Aiken, founder of Form Function Hospitality. So you leave DC, you return to Philly, you're over at Zahav, which, you know, at the time, I mean, still one of bar none, the best restaurants in the city. And you can pull out from there as well to maybe say the country, East Coast. Um, when did you start thinking that it was time for you to strike out on your own? Um, I mean, immediately. <laughs> I, I Wait, was, immediately you know, like from like when you graduated or like the first time you stepped into a kitchen? I always wanted to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I would say I got a little bit of a later start than, sure. than some people do, right? Because I took these detours through like a year of law school that didn't work out and kind of exploring some other things. So um, I... Yeah, I, I, I always had this idea in my head that I would, you know, I, I wasn't going to be like a lieutenant for a celebrity chef for a decade before I, I, I did my thing. I, I, I wanted to um, get out on my own. So, you know, really from the outset, when I when I got to Philly, um, you know, I was like on LoopNet and Craigslist and um, not working with a broker or anything, but just pounding the pavement looking mm. for services that uh, could accommodate one of the ideas I had kicking around. Like, and this was pretty much right out of the gate. You know, I was on my days off. I was, I was going to look at spaces and uh, you know, writing, you know, kind of napkin business models and, sure. and uh, investment pitches to, to, to people in my orbit who I think might be able to support that. So yeah, it was, it was, um, it was right away. Yeah. What were those first few years like? Um, did you feel that you had learned enough? Did you feel that actually getting a later start was better than just jumping into it at a younger age? You know, what, what you know, you never forget your first one. So, what was that journey yeah. like? I thought that I knew, I, I I knew that I could work hard, and I knew I had stamina. Um, I think the dynamic when I when I think back to Zahav in that era and like what was uh, what was asked of us day to day, expected of us, um, you know, kind of who who survived those expectations and persevered and stuck around. It was like a, a really, you know, anybody past the fryer station or like you know, <laughs> which is cold, what's cold side as well, um, was. A thoroughbred. I mean, truly, yeah, like it, it was. We're, we're talking like you. You had the same level of energy when you got there as as you did at uh, you know one a.m. when you were when you were mopping and scrubbing. It was just like the 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 competition on that line was uh, deep. It was deep, and it was like it 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 made me. Um, you know, I think the 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 cook that that I am. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I felt like I was whatever restaurant I was going to do, it was going to be small enough where the stakes weren't so high that I was going to lose anybody to fortune. You know, if it went wrong, I probably wasn't going to be like carrying a bag of debt around for the rest of my life. I didn't have a family, so I wasn't, I wasn't gonna, you know, uh, end up on the streets with, with, you know, no, no roof over my kid's head. It was, it was pretty I would say the stakes were relatively low. Um, all the different things that I was imagining I might do. So 
I don't know. I just, I, I, I felt like, I felt like I could do it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, and it goes well enough that you open up other, other restaurants and then you start to eye uh, opening back in your hometown of, of um, Wilmington. How did you balance it? How did you know, how do you know when it's time to like, okay, I can open up another spot. I can open up another spot in Philly. I can go to DC and open up another spot. Like, you know, how do you start to, to get these practices and places and expand while still keeping Um, the same quality? It's a lot less methodical than I think you might be (laughs) implying with that question. You know, uh, to some extent, it's like an opportunity falls in your lap and, uh, it makes, it makes, you know, mathematical sense. You feel like, uh, that last place is stable enough now in terms of revenue and staffing that, uh, you're not going to pull the rug out from underneath yourself by, Mm. by doing something else. You know, these places that I had in Philly, and by the way, I closed all three of them during the pandemic. Um, they were small enough that, uh, you know, it wasn't, it, it was never, it was never unthinkable to like grab another opportunity. And, and, and it was even, I would argue like by necessity when I think back and in mm. retrospect, I'm like, you know, there's only so much, uh, even, even if your 20 seat restaurant is busy every night, if you don't, if you don't have liquor margins oh. and, you yeah. know, you're running a decent amount of your revenues through delivery services, right? Because you don't have the seats that can produce, um, you know, the amount of money that that the restaurant needs to generate. So you're looking outside to other arrows pointing in, you're linking up with delivery services. And, um, you know, it's like, unless you are literally there, uh, baked into the business model seven days a week, um, you kind of have to do more things, um, you know, to, to, to provide an advance, you know? And I think that became, that, that began to feel especially urgent, uh, when I had my first daughter. Kids will change the whole equation. Um, yeah. so you mentioned having to close your restaurants during the pandemic and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I know that 2020 was an especially big year for you because that's when you, you end up opening up your first spot in Wilmington at the Hotel DuPont um, and the pandemic hits and you're making all these decisions. And so you're starting this new venture, you're closing these new spots, like emotionally in the headspace, like what were you in? Because on the other side, if that wasn't enough, you also get involved with the IRC and you're helping to like lobby and even though you, you're juggling your own businesses, like helping other people, like take us back to that time. And how did you prioritize, you know, what you need to do to survive and what you need to do to help the larger community? Yeah. Um, I, you know, things kind of work out the way they're supposed to, I guess. I I think about that time. And by the way, it was not the plan to close these restaurants in Philly. I was proud of them. Sure. Um, they were stable, you know, if not throwing off profits that were going to make anybody rich. Like it was, it was enough. They were in their own ways, like beloved by their respective neighborhoods. Uh, you know, I had teams that I, I personally valued and, and loved. And um, it was, you know, I, I saw the promised land, right? Like mm. I had this, 
this thing at Hotel DuPont. It was the first project that I had done that was really properly uh, developed, you know, where there was like a branding exercise with hmm. a, with, with a, with a branding agency, there was PR involved. There was, you know, I'd always been kind of like punk rock DIY, like sure, I'll sure. never have a publicist. I'm now married to a publicist by the way. And I love her and she makes this all possible. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, 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 you know, it was like a, a, an architect, a, a general contractor. I mean, I had done restaurant projects where, we should have had a GC and we should have had permits, but yeah. we just put paper up over the windows yeah. and did the work quietly. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, um, of you know, so, so it was like, okay, this thing, this is like the real deal. I made it. It's a hundred seat, 150 seat restaurant coming online. It's going to produce enough revenue that I can start having people around me who can help me kind of like run around between these places. And that was the challenge of those, those little spots is like the little places, they have all the problems that a big restaurant has. Of course. Um, You just can't really afford the right amount of management to help you deal with all those issues. Right. So it's just like chaos all the time. Um, Always something on fire. And, you know, I'm like, okay, so, March 1st, whatever, March 1st, 2020, if you ask me, how are things going? I'm like, they're going great. Yeah. I'm about to open this place down at the Hotel DuPont in May. And I'm like thinking about what's going to be behind it. And, uh, and then the shit hit the fan. And um, all of a sudden, you know, three laid off teams. Mm. Um, there was no knowing when the Hotel DuPont was actually going to open, right? Because sure. You know, we have furniture coming from France. We have upholstery coming from New Jersey. We have millwork coming from PA. And at that time, you know, you couldn't even cross state lines with like manufactured uh, components to put a restaurant together. So it was like, yeah, um, really for me, jarring. Um, I got super depressed. My outlet was uh, Mm. was was. I would, you know, I think the IRC was like my, my mm-hmm. release valve, right? It was the connection with other people all around the country who, you know, some of them had 20 restaurants that each grossed 10 million a year. And then there was me with three restaurants that in total, you know, grossed, uh, you know, two or 3 million a year. Right. So sure. it was like people, all different scales, sure. all different experiences, backgrounds. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just commiserating. It was like solution oriented. We were in the trenches together, making the Mm -hmm. calls that we could Mm -hmm. like, um, working every angle we could to try to find some relief for restaurants. I, I, it's funny. I listened earlier to the interview that you did with David Nafeld in May of 21. And I was like, wow, May of 21, we were already over a year into this thing at that point. And that was almost three years ago now. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's we're all, still it's like, today. There, it's still yeah. it, just because the doors are open doesn't mean that people are fully recovered. And I think that's yeah. one of the biggest things that people miss about this is that it's still a journey back to what it was. I got super depressed. I mean, I, I think I, I've always had uh, a a uh, um, a tendency towards uh, like depressive kind mm-hmm. of thought thoughts and, um, sort of self-destructive behavior at times. Um, and in that moment I was just, you know, the restaurants were either dormant or in some state of kind of 
partial operation. Um, and I was drinking a lot and, um, you know, I wasn't happy. I was, I was, I was panicking and, um, you know, some of those friendships I made through the IRC are, are, are enduring ones. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, and, and furthermore, um, I was able to try something new, um, in the form of therapy that like, mm. uh, you know, and, and Gia, my wife, like really facilitated that. Um, and you know, she was incredibly patient. I think back to like what a mess I was at that time on a personal level. Um, and, and, and just the grace and, and, and patience that she showed towards me was, uh, was just astonishing. Um, and, and, you know, I have to say, and I know that some restaurant groups and restaurants have, have implemented programs that give people access to therapy. And, and we all know how endemic like the, mm-hmm. the substance abuse issue is in our industry. But for me, like therapy, being able to talk to somebody and start to work through some of this stuff, like really saved me in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I feel like if, you know, five or 10 years ago, I would have felt like that was a really self-indulgent thing to say that, you know, um, I'd rather stiff upper lip this thing and like, uh, sure. white knuckle it. And let's, let's like, let's just work Push. our 80 hour weeks yeah. and, uh, keep moving. But, um, it was, it was, you know, that was part of the mixed bag is like, it gives you an opportunity to slow down and think about what you're doing and where you want to go in life. And, um, you know, I'm, re- I'm really grateful for that episode as, as, as hard as it was, I think about it. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I feel, I feel good. I feel good today. I mean, thank you for sharing. And it's a beautiful sentiment. And, you know, I, I, I love that you and and other chefs have become so open about this stuff. And I know that you're passing that new mindset, the new outlook to the next generation of chefs through mentoring and things like that. And I have to imagine, like, why not to imagine? I know that talking to chefs that coming up, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like you said, like there was no, like, how are you feeling? Literally not how you're feeling. It's just like, are you ready to work? And if you're not, I mean, how has it been chatting with the new um, generation of chefs and prepping them for like what their lives are going to be and how to balance it in a way that maybe you didn't have that guidance when you were coming up? Yeah. I mean, I'll speak in, kind of broad terms here because I've had conversation with folks and I don't want to compromise their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their, their, their right to privacy. But I think, um, there is an openness and a tolerance towards, um, some of these issues that has emerged that is an incredibly positive thing. Um, you know, for a long time, it was, it was just, kind of the the elephant in the corner right um and and even more than that even more than being an elephant in the corner like an unspoken reality that we all knew about you know it was almost a badge of honor it was like that's what hey, it was. yeah you know like uh elephant I, on your chest not in the corner yeah dude you know? like yeah i'm where i'm about to like do a 16 hour day with 300 covers tonight i'm gonna prep the shit out of it not only that i'm gonna leave you a mountain of fucking prep tomorrow that you can sell behind me uh 
And guess what? I drank like uh, a quart. You know, yeah, I drank I drank a fifth of of whiskey, ten beers, and uh, whatever last night. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it was more than that. So um, that was like <laughs> that was that was kind of, um, and I'm sure in some places this is still the case, but I, I think less and less so, and that's a good thing. I agree. I think it's just um, going in with a. A mindset from the start and then making a business plan that also matches that mindset because, and listen, there's restaurants in Philly that like we're open Monday through Friday. We're not open Saturday and Sunday. And there's just, I think part of what the pandemic allowed for is mentally and even like comparatively allowing chefs and restaurants to be what they want to be. And no one's saying like, oh, you're not doing Saturday, full house, two PDRs, three hours of sleep. It's like, cool, you're open from Monday to Thursday. You're doing lunch and breakfast, and then you're doing family time on the weekend. And everyone's like, sounds great. I'm in. Like, congrats to you. Yeah. 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 That's I, – I think that's fantastic. I think the, um, the competing dynamic there is, uh, you know, they're, they're – if that's how you want to run your business, if exactly. that's a model that you want, that's fantastic. If you can make that work, like more power to you. You yeah. know, if if you can find a way to set your business up so that um, you don't have to be there a hundred percent of the time, and you can actually like not miss your child's uh, entire childhood. That's incredible. If you like, could kiss it in the morning the or at night or even both. Yeah. Wonderful. Right. Wonderful. You know, but there's still this kind of yeah, like lingering. I know. I know. There's this there's this lingering expectation, I think, in in certain corners of food media, uh, especially uh, critical food media, that like um if you're not doing that like 40 seat passion project and when I pop in anonymously, if you're not there, like sweating on the line, uh, each of the three times that I come before I write the review, um, you know, there's this, it's, it's kind of like glorifying the, uh, the, the, the alcohol and the drug use in a way, right. Where it's, it's, you know, there's this, this view again, in certain quarters of the food media where it's like, I want to see you struggling. I want to get the sense yeah. that like, if you're not here, the economic, the business model doesn't work. I want to, I want to feel like if you're, um, if I don't, you know, if, if, if I don't see you here all the time, like this isn't, this isn't the restaurant that, uh, I need it to be to kind of anoint it, um, in the way that I can. And I think that what that leads to often is, is, you know, chefs, restaurateurs becoming like trapped um, in these in these really small places where and it's like, OK, well, I can expand. But if I expand, I'm not going to be at that place all the time anymore. And then if that guy shows up and I'm not there, like he's going to think that I'm phoning it in. Yeah. I mean, the tough thing is, is that you can turn your back on it. But as we all know, those lists and being on you know, the national best new chef or restaurant or things like that drives a lot of business. And it's, uh, it's a double edged sword. Um, of course, 
you know, <laughs> yeah. I, look, I, I, I love the energy and the adrenaline rush of, of being in the kitchen, of being in the restaurant as much as anybody. I also really love being with my kids. So when I look at an opportunity, I'm not looking at just like, uh, what is this going to do for me and my family financially? What is this going to do for, um, you know, my reputation or my ability to kind of get on a fresh list? It's, it's you know, the, the primary uh, criterion for me is, you know, can I do this project and still have time with my family? Exactly. That's it. Now, look, you have a new project opening up. Bastia and Philly this year and you know the menu looks great I'm super excited about it but what I'd love to actually talk about is creating playlists for each of your spot because this is now fifth sixth spot that you've opened and you know they can't all have the same music and they can't all have Pusha T which I know that you love (laughs) but how do you make a playlist? What's the vibe? Like, how do you set it, especially for the new spots? And then how long does it take to really dial it in? So I have to admit, um, you know, we were the first three restaurants, the little places I had in Philly, it was like, you know, Spotify account, sure. Uh, family account, love it. each location, you know, was, was in theory, a user. Occasionally you get these kind of like cease and desist type letters from uh, BMG or whatever it is, right. Where they've identified your, your, your streaming activities associated with a business address. <laughs> um, I was, you know, again, and that kind of like punk rock, like pirate ship type of stuff, whatever mode. Right. Yeah. It was a pirate ship. Um, you know, it was, it was figuring out honestly. So I I told you I worked for, um, Johnny Moniz down in DC, uh, who had Comey, Comey Mm -hmm. and little Saro. Um, they had the coolest musical direction and his wife, Ann Marler was largely the, uh, the source of this, um, just super distinctive, like, yes, eclectic, but it all made sense. You know, there was an arc to the playlist. And that's something that um, is really interesting to me, especially now that I, I've the last few projects have been like all day type operations. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's like there needs to be an arc throughout the oh, day yeah. that is sensitive totally. to what time of day um, you're 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 active, but also within that meal period, there needs to be an arc, right? So like, you're not going to play the same music when the first few people are walking in at five o'clock is when the restaurant's bumping at eight o'clock, um, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night, there needs to be a build, a crescendo. Um, I think that when you're getting close to that crescendo is when there's really more opportunity to get eclectic and, and, um, and kind of play with different genres and um, just kind of maybe you're tying it together with a, you know, the, your, your constant is this like incrementally uh, increasing beat per minute or, or, or maybe there's some kind of like funny yeah. connection that you're trying to make in a subtle way between one artist or one genre and another. Um, I have to give huge props to, uh, a company called Gravy. Mm. Not sure if you're familiar with them, but what they do is um, a lot of that legwork that I, you know, used to do myself, or with the help of, of some trusted uh, colleagues, um, 
this is a service that, you know, they handle the licensing. So you're not going to get those cease and desist letters anymore. And it's actual people. It's not like, uh, you know, kind of an algorithm. It's not like a, it's, it's not a, you know, a a Muzak kind of algorithm that's spitting out a playlist for you. These are like real people. They're true music nerds who staff this company. Awesome. And you can call them like if you have a special event and you think that what's going to match that event. I feel like I'm doing an advertisement right now and I apologize, but everybody should know about gravy because they're really amazing. Um, You'd be like, I got this thing coming in. Like they, you know, they're, this is, this is the vibe and this is the food that they want served. And I'm thinking that like some, like, we can lean into the rat pack tonight or, you know what I mean? Right. Like, let's do a, let's do a tonight. Like they will turn around a playlist of that for you quickly. And not only is it there for you, it's sick. Like it, I couldn't have done a better job myself. Um, so huge fan of them. And as I have, you know, had myself become spread a little more thin, mm. um, I love like having competent, partners who are really, really good at what they do. I used to try to own everything. And now, um, you know, it's, 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 I I see more and more like the utility in in having longer, deeper relationships with people who are much better at doing that thing than you are. How you get better yourself. Yeah. 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 Well, Tyler, I can't thank you enough for making the time and sharing so much with us. If people want to check out the restaurants or hospitality group, or just follow along with your adventures, where can they go? So, uh, upcoming restaurant, uh, at Bastia Fishtown, right? So that's going to be in a 50 room boutique hotel in Fishtown, um, at, uh, Le Cavalier, uh, DE is uh, the restaurant at Hotel DuPont in Wilmington. I'm at Tyler underscore Aiken. I'm only on Instagram, really. I'm not TikToking or tweeting. It's fine. It's, you know. <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you so much. Thank you to Bailey for setting this up. We have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.
episode is supported by HRN business member Itani Ramen, Chef Kyle Itani's expression of Japanese dining culture located in Oakland, California. At Itani, Kyle explores Japan's rich culture, focusing on traditional flavor profiles and offering an izakaya experience made up of a diversity of small bites, donburi bowls, cocktails, and plenty of ramen. Itani's sister restaurant located next door, Yonsai Hand Rolls, serves open-faced Japanese sushi hand rolls made of crisp nori, seasoned sushi rice, and top-notch fish. Itani Ramen and Yonsei Handrolls support HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drives conversation to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. I am one half your host, Snagatoons, Greg Bresnitz. Uh, we have Heidemann, aka Monica H, uh, live in studio. Uh, thanks, big shout out to Andrew J6. <laughs> as he is Andrew in our from phone. Andrew from J6. Andrew from J6. I don't even know if he associates that, but that's how he is in our phone. Yeah, we both realized we both have him in our phone that way. Yeah. Um, many bands ago. Many bands ago. Um, speaking of many bands ago, you've had many, many bands. I have. Um, you want to rattle off some of the former projects? Uh, well, current, well, currently I have this project, and then I also play, in, play synth in the Wall McLean and also... Um, Hess is more a great band from from Denmark and also half the time in New York. Um, I was in a in a pop band called Xylos where I was singing, and then before that, I had kind of a solo, uh, kind of proggy, jazzy rock thing uh, under my own name once again. Um. So you started 10 years ago, you were saying, with your own name project, and now you've dropped the first name, and you're just going by a last name. Mm-hmm. What was the decision to, or, or is, is there any tie between the former project and the current project, or is it just in name only? Just in name. You know, my cells regenerated, so <laughs> I got a new name. Um, and uh, let's just talk about Mom Clean for like half a second. Yeah. Because I saw you play at um, what is uh, now another defunct uh, venue, Cameo. Oh, yeah. That show was amazing. Oh, yeah. Which one did you go to? Um, the last one or the one of the first ones? The last one. Oh, great. I was, uh, I was out sick and was like, I will just like try to make it for the second one. It was great. That new record is great, and the, the band put together is, is awesome. Yeah, it's been great playing with them. Um, so let's talk about the current project and um, how do, you know, the songs kind of come together like where do you pull the inspiration from for this kind of given 10 years of synth playing and and your history uh well i think it really came from playing in bands for so long and i never really got to create things on my own Mm -hmm. um either out of thinking that i couldn't or just not wanting to or not not even thinking about it really and i think after what's that i was gonna say why did you think you couldn't um, I think because at the time I wasn't like super into electronic stuff or production and I was just more like, oh, I'm a singer and, mm. and I, I like synths, but like I've, I'm never going to, or not I'm never going to, but like I didn't, I was more focused on like being a singer, I guess, and like writing, writing songs and I would write with like with bass or bass synth a lot and like have a lot of, um, make, make connections with like, like harmony and, and bass lines and melody and stuff. And stuff, but I never got into the technical aspects of it um, until I 
kind of decided that I wanted to, and it, of course there's like a, a learning curve involved <laughs> to get past the technical stuff, but I just kind of like broke my brain against it for a couple years. It's and am- it's amazing. Still am. But yeah. yeah. But it's amazing how people feel like, you know, I'm too old or right. I can't do that. And then you just kind of put like one little small foot in front of the other. And yeah. you're like, you're like, oh, I learned this synth or I learned this like arpeggiator or, yeah, or like anything. So, yeah, I think also, I mean, I've, I've always like loved synth since I was a child and, uh, I just never, they always, they kind of intimidated me, to be honest. Like, once I actually had, like, a real one in front of me. What was the first one that you kind of broke your head against but felt that uh, you mastered? Um, the fir- like, the first synth that I got was uh, was the Korg Poly 800, which actually isn't, like, the easiest synth to really learn as far as Like, you started on medium. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it was like a, you know, a, a relatively inexpensive or a inexpensive synth, but to program that is sort of a huge pain in the ass. And it's not a very good synth to mess with in a live setting. It's more of those kind of synths that you just find your sound and like hope and then go with that for whatever song. I mean, unless you mod it and get all crazy with that, but I haven't done that yet. I mean, there's, there's still more to learn. There's, it seems endless. Yeah. And there's the whole modular world, which is really, like, taking off and has taken off. And, and how did you how did you teach yourself, or where did you start? Uh, I had, you know, some friends. I would ask them things and annoy the shit out of them. And, and I, I literally, like, couldn't understand it. Like, mm. like there's, like, the con- like, certain concepts of it just, like, would not integrate themselves in my brain and I was just like oh my god why can't I learn this and I felt really stupid and then like you just I just would remember just like staring at a synth and like all the and and then all of a sudden like this thing just like opens up in your brain and it's like this huge epiphany on like how it works and you're like oh my god I can get this now and then there's like another thing another layer and it keeps like going and going uh can we hear a song Sure. See, see how effortless that was? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are you going to play for us first? I'm going to play a song off um, my newish EP. It's called um, So In Love. I'm So In Love. Said you were a good guy 
So you mentioned that you have loved synths since childhood. Mm-hmm. What is it that grabbed you about them uh, before, you know, you loved them before you understood them? Yes. What was, what are, <laughs> <laughs> I just knew. <laughs> just, what was it that spoke um, to you? I don't I don't really know. It's just the sound, you know, like a sound just gets to you. And I think a lot of it, like I watched a lot of music videos when I was a kid from the 80s. And like I used to like have to watch like the MTV top 10 video countdown, like at the at the end of the week, every week. And, you know, at the time, there's like all these bands with synths and a lot of like DX7s and Casios and stuff. And there was just something about about the sound and I, I just remember like wanting one so badly for Christmas and I, I was taking piano lessons and when I was a kid and I was like oh I want like a Casio for you know for some reason that was like the name that stood out from probably from some music video and uh and I remember my dad got me a Casio but it was like one of those kind of like Casio tone like with like the program beats and I, I think we still have one in our attic yeah uh, that's I just, still have mine yeah, too just like in very, my dad's yeah. attic but I remember <laughs> being all really bummed go out to die. yeah no I remember like even in fourth grade being like like playing it and like being like that's not the sound that I want like I wanted like like wave waves and stuff. I wanted like sawtooths and square, and you know. To- yes, totally. but I didn't know that I wanted that. But right. I just remember like being like, "Oh, electric piano! Like this is not what, what like I the, wanted." The rumba beat. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, tango, rumba, salsa, two step. Yeah, just uh, you're like, hmm, this is not this is not what I envisioned this. Yeah, would be. no, not at all. And I just remember being like, and I didn't understand why I was so bummed because I was just cause I didn't have anyone else. My parents are like. I mean, they were into music, but they're, like, into kind of classical music, and they're, like, immigrants and didn't, like, weren't exposed to, you know, rock that much or uh, pop, who, you know. Who were some of the bands um, that influenced you kind of early on? Uh, pretty much just pop bands. No, nothing too obscure. I think, like, my favorite albums were, like, uh, Cyndi Lauper, She's So Unusual. That was, like, a big one. Madonna, pretty, pretty classic. <laughs> I know. I, sorry for the distraction. There's a huge uh, surprise birthday party going on in the backyard. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. You're doing, I mean. They're not clapping for, for they're, my, they're like, Madonna, my, yes. my childhood choices. Cindy Lauper. Oh, I, my I God. I agree. Oh, yes, of course. She was amazing. <laughs> she got robbed that Friday. She should have been number one. Um, Seriously. Underrated pop star. Uh, can we hear another song? Sure. Uh, what are you going to play for us this time? Um, this one is called Swords, and it's from my first um, EP called Orphan.
so EP came out uh, earlier this spring. Yes, in April. Congratulations. One, yeah. Um, what's up for? I guess I guess summer's almost done. So I guess what's no, up for right? the fall? Man, that's that's like heartbreaking that summer's almost done. I know, like got all of a sudden cold. Not cold, but yeah. like. <laughs> You know, a balmy 80 yeah. <laughs> uh, this week, and you can kind of feel the cool, yeah, you can the, feel the it's fall like, creeping in. Yeah, That's okay. How's your fall clothing right. game? Uh, well, I'm going to L.A. I'm going to try and keep it oh. keep it alive, oh. keeping <laughs> summer alive. Like, I refuse to pack any jackets. It's just shorts, yes. tank tops. Exactly. Um, so, L.A., uh, any shows coming up? Uh, yeah, actually, I have one at uh, Come On, Everybody. Oh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when? September 1st. Oh, perfect. So, yeah. Great. You should come. Yeah, of course. Who else is playing? Uh, my friend uh, is playing, she goes by the name um, Trash Magnolia. She's a, it's kind of like electronic, uh, bouncy New Orleans, but not jazz-ish. Jazz-ish, jazzy, yeah. but electronic with a trashy... Okay. Overtones. That sounds great. Yeah. That sounds like really. That actually sounds really. Yeah. Fine. She's an old friend of mine, and she's amazing. So. Is she from New Orleans, or? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Well, we'll make sure we have time for one more song. Um, where can people find your two EPs? Where can they find you on the usuals? The, the usual places. <laughs> um, I mean, if you want a physical copy, you can go to Bandcamp, but you know, Spotify, iTunes. Etc. Can we talk about Bandcamp for a second? Yeah, yeah. They are great. Thank you. I love them. Yeah, they um and they they are I feel like super underrated. Yeah. But um I feel they they probably more than most have done a really good job for making a lot of the bands that we book on here like direct kind of like access to them and to learn their music and discover a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, it's great. And like for uh, you know like people don't really buy physical stuff anymore but like for for an online store for that kind of thing and if you don't have some major distributor doing that for you and it's like amazing because you you know you just go direct and it's it's awesome and there's also a lot of bands that do fun stuff like um people sell cassettes you get the digital and you get the cassette yeah but i don't know i don't have a cassette player but you know oh you don't no I have a couple I can give you. Oh, really? Yeah. I, oh, I might have one. It might be in the Casio, next to Casio. Oh, yeah. It's probably in the probably. same. <laughs> probably in like the same kind of like. Same department. Yeah, the same, the same sad place of <laughs> departed electronics that we that went for the 80s. Um, well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, yeah. Big shout out to the Cadoba guys. Um, thank you to Mr. Andrew Raposo. Of uh, wherever he might be. Um, shout out to the family, to Meatball, to Ornella. Thanks to Pierre for stepping in today. It was a great man. Uh, Dave, hope you had a good time in Philly. We will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Um, What's the name of the last song you're going to play for us? Uh, This one's called My Pet, and it's on the the new EP that just came out. Okay. Um, Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week.
Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.